We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. My name is Jari Bolander. Welcome to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the traits, values, beliefs, and skills of all sorts of entrepreneurs to learn how to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient world. Let's get started. Hey, everyone. Stay tuned to the end of the interview where I'll give you some actionable insights that I learned from my guest. These insights are also in the show notes. And all the show notes are all at theentrepreneurethos.com. As always, thanks for listening. Now, on to my guest for today, Chris Clues, author of Raised on the 80s and a speaker who draws on movies from the 80s to illustrate lessons for business and life. After 20 years working in marketing, Chris was wondering what else life had in store for him. He found inspiration in watching one of his favorite movies from the 80s, The Breakfast Club. He began writing about insights he gained from 80s movies, first finding popularity on LinkedIn, He self-published a book, built a website, and became a speaker. He's since written two more books where he draws on 80s pop culture to relate lessons on work and life. Chris shares some examples of these lessons from entrepreneurs and leaders. In Coming to America, Eddie Murphy plays an African king who journeys to Queens, New York. He hides his royal background and takes a job at a fast food restaurant. Chris explains how this is an example of humble leadership over earned leadership, and how this can provide a better model for others. Another example he shares is the wisdom of Mr. Miyagi from The Karate Kid, where he reminds his student to remember to breathe. Chris and I talk about these lessons are as apt now as they were back when they were made, why 80s movies have an enduring appeal to the younger generation, and why the 80s were such an exciting experimental time in pop culture. Now, Let's get better together. Chris Clues, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the megaphone. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. You're a speaker, author, but more importantly, 80s pop culture guy. And I'm thinking I'm going to really enjoy this because I am Gen X. You're Gen X. I graduated high school 1989. That's how old Crazy Uncle Jari is. Chris, 1988. That's right. So here yes. we go. 
Both really good movie years. (laughs) Yes. Yes, indeed. And we're going to talk all about that because there's just such something so fascinating about 80s pop culture that just doesn't seem to go away. And I'm always trying to find the cool little references to embarrass my stepdaughter with all that stuff. So uh, (laughs) um, hopefully she's watching Cobra Kai. Yeah, there's a bunch. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like that. But uh, before we get into all of that, as I always like to say, my first question is always the same. Tell us how you got to do what you're doing today. Yeah. So first of all, again, I want to thank you for the megaphone. For those of you out there that don't know how podcasts work, uh, I get asked often if I should, hey, you should do your own podcast. Like I like being a guest because the work that you have to put in on the back end as an independent podcaster, I know that work and I appreciate it. And I appreciate that that you and others like you are out there giving us, me, a voice to be able to go out and, and talk to everybody. So I appreciate that. No problem. Yeah. So uh, how I got started, uh, this is going to be, this is going to kind of tell you a little bit about me in terms of 80s because I got started based on a couple of 80s movies. Uh, I was in the corporate world and I did corporate marketing for 20 plus years uh, really enjoyed marketing, but I got to a point where I just, I was kind of looking around and thinking, is this, is this it for me? Am I just going to be a pretty good marketing guy or is there something else? And I, I ended up in a job that just wasn't working out for me. I was 47 years old at the time. I came home, I had a self-pity party of one on my couch as I often do. And I was watching The Breakfast Club. Oh, and love, uh, love that movie. Classic. I mean, just oh. iconic 80s movie, time capsule 80s movie. And uh, Bender, now I watched the movie a hundred times probably. And uh, it was actually, the, my dad thought it was the first R-rated movie I ever saw when I was 15, I think, because he took me to it, but it actually wasn't. I saw Stripes before that. It's <laughs> uh, another good one. Yeah. So he had no idea. I think I had seen a couple actually, but Stripes is the one I remembered mostly. Uh, so I went to see The Breakfast Club with him. He said, this is going to be an important movie for your generation. I was 15 at the time. He was exactly right um, how important that movie was. So I was having a self-pity party of one. Bender says, screws fall out all the time. The world's an imperfect place. And I kind of sat up because I thought, my screws have fallen out. I'm in an imperfect place. What am I going to do to put them back in? Am I going to just get the same set of screws that fell out, put those same screws in and keep going down this path? Am I going to get a new set of screws and maybe you know do something a little bit different? Or am I going to do what I did, which is new set of screws, new door, new door frame, and walk out to an entirely new journey? And that's what I did. And that was kind of the, um, the spark. And so I thought, what do I do with this? And then I was watching The Outsiders, and Johnny Cade says, you still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. And you said earlier about the show, about entrepreneurs and it's for people from 18 to 80, whatever, you know, whenever you become an entrepreneur. And that was what Johnny Cade was saying. You still have a lot of time to make yourself be what you want. You don't have to be 25 to be an entrepreneur. Believe me when I tell you, you do not. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, sometimes, you know, with a little age comes some wisdom and you can, you know, maybe make mistakes, but maybe not the same mistakes you would have made 20 years ago. So I took these two things and I thought, what do I do with this? And I wrote an article for LinkedIn, uh, what the Breakfast Club taught us about problem solving. And this idea of screws falling out. And I got up the next day and all these people had responded, which was shocking to me. I thought, wow, this is really cool. Like people are, this is resonating with people. And I wrote one about what Ferris Bueller teaches us about work-life balance. And it just kind of took off from there. So I wrote a little book, 60 page book, um, nothing deep, 
but this idea of what 80s pop culture can teach us about today's workplace. And I took 10 movies and I found the lessons in a really, really short book. Kind of say like, if you were ever in a Spencer's gifts back in the day and in the, uh, <laughs> remember those? Spencer's gifts. Oh yeah. my gosh. This is great. <laughs> yeah. In the eighties malls, like you went into Spencer's gifts and you looked at the truly tasteless joke books. Yes. My book would have been on the same shelf, not because it was tasteless, but because no, no. it was short and it was kind of like a stocking stuffer if you're around the holidays. Yeah, 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 yeah. And people started buying it on Amazon. And, I, you know, my buddy and I self-published it. We figured out how to do it. We'd never done it before. I'm like, wow, this is cool. So I built a website, uh, never done that before. And I said, yeah, I'm a speaker. And uh, then people started hiring me to speak. And I thought, now I got to figure this out. What am I going to say? And I ended up writing a second book. I had a small publisher for the second book, 10 more movies, but much deeper, 220 pages compared to 60. So really deeper into the movies, into the lessons, into my life at the time of each of these movies. And now I have a a speaking agent. My third book is coming out September 27th, Raised on the 80s, which is life lessons from 80s movies. So I think hopefully a much broader audience to bring into this particular book. And so now I have almost, you know, my third book coming out. I'm speaking around the country, a keynote speaker on this topic of what 80s movies and 80s pop culture can teach us. And I'm here with you today. Wow. Never would have thought that all that 80s trivia one day would be useful. (laughs) I'm still shocked by it. Every time I get on stage and I talk about 80s movies, I... Uh, I tell the story, people ask me, like, when did you realize that you actually maybe had something? Mm. And I said, Mm. I was in the airport going to a a keynote speaking engagement, and I had these funky vans on. I always wear these really funky vans. Actually, 80s fashion, terrible, but one great thing is vans. Vans, yeah, Uh, vans. Yeah, they came out in 66, but then, you know, Spicoli made them famous in 82 with his checkerboard vans. Yep, yep. and I was wearing these funky vans and this guy said, uh, we started talking. He said, oh, those shoes are awesome. I'm like, yeah, thanks. I kind of designed them myself. They're my stage shoes. He said, stage shoes? What do you do? And I said, I, I go to conferences and events and I talk about what 80s movies can teach us for life in the workplace. And he looked at me and he said, how the hell did you pull that off? <laughs> and that's when I knew I had to so. Random dude cool. in Pretty airport. Pretty cool moment for me. Yeah. yeah. No, totally. I mean, that's, it, you know, because we were talking a little bit before we, st- we hit record about like, why is the 80s pop culture just not going away? I mean, there's just something sticky about it. And it's funny because, you know, you talk about movies, but, you know, my, my stepdaughter and, and her mom, we, we bought a bunch of the sitcoms from the era, you know, the 80s yeah. era, like, you know, the Riptide and Simon and Simon, you know, the <laughs> Love Boat, you know, I mean, like the, that, that shop, right? Yeah. Like where, you know, uh, oh, what's the other one? Uh, Remington Steel, you know, oh, like wow. the A-Team, yeah. you know, and she loves them. Yeah. Because, and, you know, Murder, She Wrote was another one, which maybe pulled, pushed into the 90s, but. Or Magnum P.I. Magnum, Magnum P.I. My favorite. She loves Magnum P.I., yeah. right? She loves yeah. Magnum, she loves, she loves Higgy, Higgy Baby. Oh, <laughs> Higgins is great. Higgins yeah. and, and TC. I mean, I mean TC yeah. is fantastic. You know, Rick, the whole thing. So, yeah. you know, it's just funny. Why is it? What is the connection to it? Because it just never seems to go away. Yeah. So I, I love that you asked that question because it is really intriguing. And, and a lot of people, historians talk about how nostalgia typically comes in 30 year cycles. 
and, and we'll see a, a small piece of it. So as an example, growing up in the 80s, you probably remember that there was a, in the early 80s to mid 80s, there was this, this like really quick flash of 50s kind of pop culture and fashion. So we were pegging our jeans, mm-hmm. we were slicking mm-hmm. back our hair a little bit. Yeah. Um, there was actually a, a bit of music that came back. So the Honey Drippers, if you remember them with Robert Plant, do you remember how we met that song? Yeah. The Stray Cats. Yeah, yeah, so, I remember Stray Cats, yeah. Yeah. So this moment, there was this like our Sea of Love was the was the Honey Dripper song. So there was this moment of like uh 50s that came back, but it was only for a moment. Back to the future actually went back to the 50s. I mean, so there yeah. was this actual moment of like uh 50s nostalgia, but it was maybe a couple of years and it was gone. This is really interesting because we've been talking about an 80s 80s pop culture has been influencing pop culture for about 12 years now. Uh, you can even go back to like the original 20, the 21 Jump Street remake, the movie, you know, and, and so there's been 80s pop culture. And even before that, there was a lot of influence uh, in the movies and music as well. I think it's because the 80s pop, 80s pop culture was the last decade where pop culture wasn't manufactured. And what I mean by that is that the pop culture was being created. There's a lot of experimentation going on and pop culture was being created for the people. And so they were creating things, putting it out there and saying, do you like this or do you not like this? And if we liked it, we said, yeah, give me more of that. Give us more of that. And so they would create more of it. And if we didn't like it, they'd move on to the next thing. I think a lot of it, why we had so many one hit wonders in music is that there was a lot of experimentation going on. Then we got into the 90s and around the mid 90s is when things started getting manufactured. So after Nirvana, after grunge, because that was very organic as well. Then all of a sudden there, everything was manufactured. There was a lot of money being invested in the pop culture before it went out the door, whether it was a musician, a a song, uh, a movie, and they wanted to make that money back. They had to make that money back. So they hammered us over the head until we liked it. And I'm not so sure that we got the best pop culture after that. And you flash forward to today and it's so easy to consume pop culture that it's kind of quickly in and quickly out, but they do make a lot of money while it's there because of all the different avenues to make it. Pop culture in the eighties, you had the movies in particular, they came out, ET was in the movies, I think for 54 weeks at the box office. That's, that's crazy. I mean, think about today, but there was a box office, there was the video store, and then there was um, maybe HBO or Showtime if you were lucky, but these things all happened 12 to 18 months after the movie came out. The other thing is I talk about 80s pop culture was like a glitter bomb of creativity. So somebody took a glitter bomb and threw it against the wall and it exploded and all these wonderful colors came out. And that was 80s pop culture. As I mentioned, all the experimentation that was happening, the rawness of a lot of the pop culture in the movies, uh, the stories that they told, there wasn't the great special effects that we have today. So you had to tell a great story. You couldn't kind of hide it behind CGI. I think that's why 80s pop culture is still resonating. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I, uh, I saw an interview with Matt Damon on that podcast, YouTube channel where they eat hot wings. I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. <laughs> I mean, he's a great interviewer. I should it's know the guy's name. Too. No, no, but the guy's a plus like I've he's it's, it's a master's class in how to in interview someone. Uh, Cause he always asks great questions. And I just, on, I don't remember the name of the show, but he asked Matt Damon, he's like, why are the movies so bad nowadays? Like, what is it? Why are they all just this manufactured, like to your point, manufactured pop 
culture. You know, what is it? You know, he's like, you've been doing movies for 30 years. Can you, could you know? And Matt Damon had an awesome answer. He's like, well, back 30 years ago, we, we could experiment a little bit more because we made a lot of money off DVD sales and the video store. Now, you know, it costs so much money. I, I don't have all the distribution channels. Street, while streaming is good for consumers, it's really bad for the studio. So I have to hit it. It's like being a venture capitalist, right? Like I got to hit it out of the park. Yeah every time. So I'm going to make stuff that I know is going to hit that out of the park. And to your point, I think it's true. It's like, it's just been now it's, you can't take chances anymore on the creativity. I don't think, I mean, there's other, don't get me wrong. There's ways to do it. Like you see all these TikTok influencers and all these sort of things, but from a cultural point of view, it's interesting that it's more manufactured. huh? Yeah, it's definitely, I mean, you can see that you can see where the change happened in the mid nineties. You can see where things started to get a little more manufactured and there was a little less experimentation going on. I mean, I talk about the music, for example, you said your stepdaughter, you know, thinks she was talking about eighties music, right? I talk about the music and I take like hip hop as a genre, for example. Yeah. And I think about in the fifties, sixties and seventies, there were just a couple of genres of music that all the music kind of fell into. And that was pretty much it. So when you get to the eighties, what happened was really interesting. So you have, let's take hip hop. You have a couple of rap songs in the late seventies. You have the sugar Hill gang that everybody kind of knows, you know, hotel, motel holiday Inn. everybody kind of knows that song. And I think Curtis blow was doing a little bit at the time. Then in the eighties, hip hop explodes, but it doesn't just explode as one genre. It has all these splinter genres, you know, for every public enemy, you had a young MC. And so there was this really interesting dynamic that was happening. You had all these DJs experimenting with turntables. So you, if you were really into hip hop, you had DJs like DJ Red Alert, who I'd tell people to like, look up. He was awesome. But then you had like Spinderella with salt and pepper. You know, you had like all these different DJs and, and working the turntables. And then you had, you know, hardcore rap. You had, you know, gangster rap. You had kind of rap that was made for, you know, fun kind of hip hop party stuff. Like I yeah, said, West MC. coast, East coast, the yeah, whole, well, yeah. East coast, West coast, you had a club, you had, yeah. um, then you actually had like the really cool kind of chill stuff like De La Soul and your tribe called quest. And there was so much, it just exploded. And it, I think hip hop is a really great example of pointing to this wild time in pop culture where everybody was just experimenting and just, it was amazing. There was something for everybody. So pretty cool. Totally. Totally. No, I was watching it on, I think it was on Netflix. They had an NWA documentary. I mean, it was okay. I mean, you know, not the best film documentary, Yeah. but they were going through, it was actually about easy E I think. Yeah. I, I, again, it was, it wasn't the best produced one, but they were just talking about what it was like back then when they were having, you know, uh, trying to find good records and, you know, do good loops and stuff. And there was this, I think it was an, it was an LA, it was like a swap meet place where this one dude just had all these records and literally he was, this was the hub where all the, all the DJs went in LA to get these tape and they would make mixtapes. Remember mixtapes? Like they'd make mixtapes and and they'd be like, the guy, and I don't remember his name. He was this, he's this Asian guy. I don't remember his name, but they were interviewing him. And he's like, yeah, this stuff was selling grand. I said, Hey, make me some more of this stuff. Right. And it's like, they're in a swap meet, <laughs> like, you know, like a little farmer, not even farmer's market at that point. Right. But it was the yeah, creativity, yeah. right. They were just trying stuff. 
Like you said that you said it, make me more of this. Yeah. And that's yeah. what was happening. And so, you know, I don't know, you know, LL Cool J, I mean, he was, you know, selling tapes out of the back, I think the back of his uncle's car or something, but I don't know if you know his, like what his name means, LL Cool J. Ladies love Cool James. I mean, LL Cool J, that was like, there. I mean, when, when that, you know, like I went to a high school where um, they bust kids in. So it was very mixed. So all yeah, the so, hip hop, all of that stuff, we like got exposed to, like you know, we were in the sub white suburbs, like this, like you know, we just got inundated with it. I mean, that's when Run DMC came out, NWA, all of these ones. Like I heard them first from my friends from East Palo Alto. They're like, yeah. "Oh, you got to listen to this." Like really, like I'm a hard rock guy. I like like Iron Maiden, ACDC. You know, like no, 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 no. You got to listen to this. <laughs> and we're like, yeah. "Oh my gosh, wow!" And I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the the metal angle too, because metal yeah. had the same kind of evolution Huge. in the 80s. Yeah. So you went from, you know, you had what Black Sabbath and Kiss and a couple others. And then all of a sudden it was, you know, you could Metallica, Megadeth, Slayer to, you know, Great White and Poison. And <laughs> yeah, and yeah I mean, that's right. I was... There was like just all these different <laughs> splinter genres again, yeah. because yeah, 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 yeah. the experimentation was happening. And there were groups of people who liked Megadeth and, and Metallica and Slayer. And then there was other people who liked winger and warren and poison and then there were some who liked both and then there were people that were in between and every metal band had to have a ballad and it was just oh wild. yeah oh yeah the like, yeah monsters of rock i remember as a kid going to that or i remember the first time i ever saw metallica they opened for ozzy osbourne like before they blew up it yeah. was it was master of puppets tour so there was they were both they opened they opened we were at like the cow palace in san francisco i'm like this just blows me away, but but you're right. It's interesting. It's such a fascinating because there was so many things going on. Yeah, that were organic. I mean, you know, there's the, like you said, the hip hop, the metal, the glam bands, the hair band, like the whole thing where it was just this whole mix of culture. Yeah, you don't see much of that. I mean, you do see some of it, but it and seems now we haven't even talked about alternative music. Yeah, I tell people if they want to in my books too. I say this as well. If you really want to get an idea of how kind of how much variety there was in pop culture in the 80s, just go like Google any month of any year, any week, 80s top 40 music. And you will see Def Leppard next to Kenny Rogers, next to LL Cool J, next to Depeche Mode. And then we'll throw in like uh, Debbie Gibson and Prince. (laughs) All of those people together. And that was what I think made it so great and gives you so much content to pull from that I love to pull from for all of the lessons that I talked about as well. Yeah. And I'm, I'm trying to, yeah, just such a fascinating thing because, you know, <clears throat> the thing about being an entrepreneur, I'm sure you're finding out now that you've got your speaking and authors and, you know, all your, all your various platforms you're trying to, to uh, get out there is, you know, you have to see these trends. You have to, you have to catch it. You have to, you have to like strike when the iron is hot, right? Like it's like, Oh, like, for example, why is 80s pop culture resonating with the folks now? Well, most of the people in leadership are be, are like us, right? Like they grew up with it. They kind of, it, it's nostalgia, but nostalgia for a time, to your point, where it really was what the people wanted as opposed to what they were fed. And I'm just curious, how how does, you know, how do you apply that to your business? I mean, you know, I don't know. You've been doing this for a couple of years now. Like, yeah. how does how does it evolve? Like, how do you how do you meet that need? You know, as an entrepreneur, yet you know, 
you don't want to manufacture it, obviously, but you, you know, it, I'm just curious how that works. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, the idea of trying to look at 80s pop culture in a different way and say, what else can we get out of it? So, you know, beyond the entertainment factor, what else can we get out of 80s pop culture? And I started going back and looking at these movies and music as somebody who was, you know, 47, 48, 49, 50 years old and saying, can this teach me anything? Is there something different here? Because I've always been entertained by it. So I started looking at these movies from a different perspective. And I'll give you an example. Uh, Coming to America. Coming to America, one of the great movies, I think, of all time. And people forget that it was a romantic comedy. It is like the perfect rom-com. When we talk about rom-coms, which is another thing that really came out of the 80s. So it's romantic comedy. Oh, right. That's true. Say anything. Yeah, say anything. (laughs) I mean, 16 Candles, I guess, was a little bit of a rom-com with Jake Ryan. Yeah. Um, But romantic comedies were everywhere. Can't Buy Me Love. Um, You just go on and on. Um, That was something that was existed before the 80s, but really just exploded the rom-com exploded in the 80s. And so uh, Coming to America is a great example. Prince Akeem, like we can watch this movie just to be purely entertained and that's great. But when I look, went back and looked at it, Prince Akeem played by Eddie Murphy, you know, taught us some really great leadership lessons. And when I look at these movies, I actually look at the dialogue and I listen for quotes that might resonate with me in a particular way where I can say, yeah, this could actually teach us something. And it's based on the quote in the scene. So I'll give you an example. Coming to America has great dialogue, but a, there's a line in the movie that might be missed, kind of like a kind of a flyby line you wouldn't really pay attention to when he has the job at McDowell's restaurant. And this is after he has left his country of Zamunda. He has kind of given up all the all the things that he was, you know, he was born into royalty. Everything was given to him. We see this at the beginning of the movie. Everybody wants to please him just because of his station in life. He didn't earn it. And he actually knows this. He knows he didn't earn it. And he wants to like kind of he wants to meet people who are going to love him or like him for him. He doesn't want people to know he's a prince. He goes to Queens to find his queen and he ends up getting this job at a fast food restaurant named McDowell's entry level job, sweeping the floors, picking up the garbage. And nobody knows that he's a prince. And he's so proud of this job that he says, when you think of garbage, think of Akeem. And that line really struck me because here's this guy who could have just stayed in his country, been the prince, taken advantage of all the great things that this came with without ever having to earn anything. But he wanted something different. So what it taught us is that uh, unearned leadership creates pleasers and earned leadership creates believers. And so this idea that when you don't earn your leadership position, you have yes people around you. And that's because you don't know how to necessarily understand how to be a leader. And the people around you aren't sure how you're going to react to things. They just want to please you. They figure if we just say yes and to everything that you do, then we'll be able to move up as well because nobody here has really earned anything. Earned leadership creates believers. You've, you've, you, and when people can see that path that you've taken to leadership, you've created credibility in their eyes. And that idea of like humble leadership, I think I tell people to take a picture of, Prince Akeem in all his royal garb and put that, and I show this in my presentations, I do my keynotes. Like here's Prince Akeem in all his royal garb. Here's Prince Akeem working at McDowell's with his broom, his mop, and he's so happy. And I say, this is humble leadership. This is humility and leadership. Something a lot of leaders could use today is the idea of like humble leadership. And that's another lesson that he taught us, humble leadership, and that earning your leadership position creates credibility and believability 
in who you are. And then other people can see that path to leadership and they say, I can earn that as well. I can see that path to leadership instead of wondering like, how do I get there? Because this person didn't earn it. Is there a leadership path for me in this organization or do I need to go somewhere else? Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I remember that scene. That was such a good movie. I, I don't know if, did you, did you see, did you see the sequel? Unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> they tried, they tried, yeah, but I mean, I, uh, it's so tough on the classics, you know? Yeah, it was, I mean, there was some cool nostalgia in it. I mean, I, I, I suppose like it was great to see the barbershop, barbershop guys again. Yeah. And of course any movie with Randy Watson is a great movie, yeah. but uh wasn't yeah. well. I didn't think it was very well done. Yeah. I think. Wesley uh, Snipes was great. Yeah, I think awesome. top, the the Top Gun Maverick I think did a better job. Although I, that's what I hear, I haven't seen it yet, yeah. but I can't can't wait to. But yeah, I think it's interesting that it's a leadership is the the earned leadership aspect of it. it's very important to to really instill. You know, j- just because you're the boss doesn't mean you're the leader, or doesn't mean that you're been anointed, right? I think that's actually a really good point. Yeah. So what what are some of the things that people want to hear about when, when they, when they hire you? I mean, what, what are some of these lessons that some, you know, entrepreneurs could, could use, especially younger folk that, you know, may not have been blessed with being born in the best decade or, you know, grew up in the best decade ever. Not that we're biased. (laughs) The most excellent decade. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I got to go to one of your keynotes, man. This is just me. I'd be laughing the whole time how fun this is. (laughs) Well, that's the idea. I love them to be interactive and unique. And I actually give away, I do mixtape quizzes. You mentioned mixtapes earlier. Oh yeah. I do mixtape quizzes in the middle of the uh, presentation and I give away little Funko Pops. If you've ever seen those, a little, uh, Funko Pops, 80s, You obviously, like I have, you know, Cindy Lauper ones and Goonies ones and all kinds of stuff that I give away. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. So the lessons are, can be from really anywhere. So I have about 150 or so lessons now that cover workplace culture, uh, sales, marketing, communications, leadership, inclusion, life, just general life lessons, where I think a lot of, um, a lot, there's a lot of good lessons in life for younger entrepreneurs I think one really good one, I'd say, and so we'll talk about this because Cobra Kai's season five just came out Friday night, which is another great one. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about Mr. Miyagi and he, what he can teach us from the original Karate Kid, the original Karate Kid. And uh, with Mr. Miyagi, he was such a great character. And I think in my mind, one of the greatest characters in all of cinema because almost everything he said taught us something um, really, really valuable about life. It's just, it's just a fantastic character. And so most people remember the wax on, wax off. In that same general time frame of the movie, he has uh, Daniel doing uh, some chores with the fence. And you remember he has him painting the fence. And in that scene, he says, don't forget to breathe. Very important. And that was the line that resonated with me more than any other line in the movie. Don't forget to breathe. Very important. Because I thought about this in the context of breathing during the course of a day, particularly for entrepreneurs. So you can't see me, but I'm wearing a shirt right now that has Cameron from Ferris Bueller laying in bed when Ferris calls him and he says, I'm dying. I, I can't go. I'm dying. I'm sick. And it's you know his answer machine when Cameron, come, when Cameron was in Egypt's land, let my Cameron go. He really... Um, this is what you feel like sometimes as an entrepreneur. Like I just, 
they have those days where like, I, I feel like nothing's working. What should I do? What can I do? And that sometimes comes from stress. And so when Mr. Miyagi said, don't forget to breathe, very important. I took breathing to a whole new level. And I said, I asked how many of you out there have had dehydration before, right? It's an awful feeling. You, you didn't drink enough water that day, whatever. And you all of a sudden that bout of dehydration hits you physically and mentally. And it takes a few days to get through it. And oh, when it yeah. first hits you, you feel like you're going to die. Yeah, it's horrible. No, it's de- horrible. dehydration is as you get older, even yeah. worse. Even it's a worse. real thing. It's a real it's thing. Horrible. Well, stress is like dehydration because by the time you realize you have it, it's too late. And this idea of don't forget to breathe, very important. It's the idea of breathing throughout the day. However you define breathing, taking breaks. It could be walking your dog, playing with your kid, having a cup of coffee, getting a workout in, doing some yoga, meditation, whatever that is, taking that time to breathe. And it doesn't mean taking a lunch break. I'm talking about when you start feeling it, it's time to take a step back for a little bit. And entrepreneurs, this is so important because you'll burn yourself out really, really fast if you don't do this. And if you're in an organization, I talk about the idea of leaders taking time to breathe as well, because they talk about the idea of shit rolling downhill. Well, stress does too. And stress has a much larger impact when it rolls downhill. So leaders, if you're not taking time to breathe and that stress rolls downhill to your team, I can assure you that no one is going to be productive because now you're stressing them out as well. You have to let your team know that they can take time to breathe, whatever that breathing is for them. And you need to breathe as well as well, leaders and entrepreneurs. I'm telling you, take that time to breathe because we just talked about the, uh, the great resignation. Yeah. Everybody left their jobs and they're going to, they're going to be an entrepreneur. They're going to start their own business. And some people are going to be really successful at it, but I have a feeling we're going to have the great reset. Yeah. I'm sorry. Not the great reset. Sorry. Let me take a step back. We're going to have the the great um, return, the great Ah. return. In the spring. And then followed by the great reset. <laughs> <laughs> the great return in the spring where people are going to go back to their jobs because it's really hard to be an entrepreneur. And anybody who's deciding yeah. to do it, yeah. I'm telling you, like, it's awesome. The freedom is amazing, but it's also terrifying. You have to be prepared to when you're getting out of your comfort zone. And a lot of people are going to go back to that. That's the safety of that cubicle. But for those of you that stay out there doing it, it's a great way to live. It's exciting. It's terrifying. It's a roller coaster. Um, the movie Parenthood, if you've ever seen that movie where Steve Martin is th- has the analogy of raising kids and he's on the roller coaster and he's he's stressed out. He's like stressed on the roller coaster and then he gets excited to be on it. And that's yeah. what it's like being an entrepreneur. So you think that would be the movie that you would say would be the best movie, 80s movie for being an entrepreneur? What, what Was there another one that would be this movie is what it's like, for, at least for you to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. yeah. I mean, so, you know, everybody looks at points at business movies and says, well, what about wall street? What about working girl? What about nine to five? But for me, those are like a little too easy in terms of finding the, um, the business lesson lessons in them and the entrepreneur lessons. Another good one for entrepreneurship, actually, believe it or not, is uh, can't buy me love. Yeah. Which is a really good one because he's, you know, saving all this money. It really teaches us, about entrepreneurship, but it also teaches us about what's important in life. Um, because if I won't give away the movie, but you know, he's mowing lawns to raise money to get a telescope because that's what he's into. And he ends up doing something different with the, with the money, but there's a really important lesson there about, you know, about 
making money or kind of um, doing the thing is sometimes more important than anything else and making sure you do the thing. We talked earlier about when you're younger, like taking advantage of being young and getting out there and exploring, Um, doing the thing, because having the thing is great, but doing the thing is better. And when you start to make memories, I talk about the things that I did versus the things that I earned. And so were the things that I have. I remember working really hard to get my first boombox. I remember working really hard to get my first mountain bike. But then I remember working really hard to take my first trip. And the memories that I have from that first trip out of the country are so much greater than the mountain bike memories that I have. And so I think, you know, when you, we, we, we get too quickly, we get into like, I want to earn, I want to, when I say earn, I mean, I want to, I want to make money or get a job so I can buy this. And that's great. But it's doing the thing as well uh, that I think is more important. And Can't Buy Me Love teaches us a really important lesson in that. Do entrepreneurship for the right thing, whatever that thing is for you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's so funny because there, so I, I don't know if it's, I don't know if the attitudes are different from those that grew up in the 80s too, because you know, you talk about the great resignation, then you're going to call about the great return, right? Good point, right? There's one called, um, that I just found out about called quiet quitting. Yeah. And quiet quitting is a different kind of phenomenon, mostly focused on millennial and Z's who are like, I'm just doing the minimum that you're paying me for. I'm not like, you know, but the, the, it was termed to me, the, you know, the Puritan work ethic, which in the eighties, if you ever like knew about, you know, Reagan and the wall street type of thing where everyone's doing blow and you know, everyone's yeah, going yeah, crazy yeah. with the Coke. Right. And, and so it was, it, it's, it's, you can see that the, the generational shift towards work. Cause I think we were the last gen gen X was like the last generation where that whole Puritan work hard, you know, go to the company and things are going to happen. Right. Like if, if you just worked hard, you could be middle-class that's collapsed. And I think everyone's like, the dream is gone. I mean, it's, it's nihilistic, I think, but you can see that. And you also see what's interesting. And, and again, from a business perspective, you see more and more, you know, I think, I think it's like in terms of union, like people wanting to be in a union or union, yeah. like positive, it's like 70 plus percent. It's never been that high since the fifties and sixties. So you see the shift and I'm curious the the thing the thing in the eighties that I think for good or bad was the go go hustle 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 you know like the wall the Wall Street the Glen Gary Gen Ross kind of thing like these are for close you know I wonder <laughs> I wonder do you see the the now this new phenomenon as you mentioned the resignation there'll be the return of course this quiet quitting phenomenon how do, how do, how does that play with the kind of eighties mentality nostalgia like like what are the lessons there? Were, were there some precursors to that? Like how, what's your thoughts? Yeah. So I, I think um, particularly in talking to people who are in their twenties that, that are at my keynotes, because believe it or not, the people that come up to me afterwards, the most are the Gen X people, not surprisingly. And then Gen, Gen like, I guess we would call it Gen Z, but maybe like mid twenties. Yeah, Gen Z. They're really embracing the 80s. So I'm going to be curious to see if they also embrace uh, a different perspective on career. Mm. When it, I think they'll always want that freedom because 
actually that's a good thing. And I think that's something that we don't want to go back to. We don't want to go back to those hundred hour weeks that that's just not healthy for anybody. It's not healthy for the organization. It's not healthy for the person. I think the freedom that, that, that employees want freedom and the, the ability to be able to kind of get their stuff done when they get it done is actually a really good thing. If as long as, as long as you're producing and getting the work done and doing what is expected from the organization, I'm a night owl. So it was always a struggle for me to be in the office at seven 30 or eight in the morning. And I really didn't produce until 11 in the morning because I was just not there. And so that was hard for me. And it's hard for everybody to fit into the same square peg when it comes to that. But what's really interesting talking to them is that they embrace the 80s pop culture for on a number of levels. One is, again, I think the, the storytelling and kind of the, the rawness of the characters. The characters weren't perfect. Um, I, I tell a story about, actually, I was in the grocery store about a year and a half ago with a buddy and his girlfriend. We're picking up some stuff to grill out and we're checking out and the, I'm wearing a breakfast club shirt. And the girl points at my shirt and says, that's my favorite movie. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. And I said, hold on, wait, how can this be your favorite movie? I said, how old are you? And she said, I'm 15. And I said, I was 15 when this movie came out. How can this be your favorite movie? Yeah. And she said, all my friends, we all love Breakfast Club and all the 80s movies, especially Breakfast Club. And they talk about John Hughes. She was saying Pretty in Pink. And yeah, John I said, Hughes. can I ask why? And she said, because the characters were real. They were authentic. Like we could relate to them. And I said, what about high school movies today? And they said, no, they, all the kids look like they're in their thirties. The guys are driving hundred thousand dollar cars. It's not realistic. And so I thought, wow, this is pretty amazing. Like to think that those movies and the dialogue, and she said that the struggles that the characters were having are the same struggles that we have. Meanwhile, today's movies are talking about the struggle is like they, they want it. They don't have the right clothes or they, there's something going on in their life that really doesn't matter in the scheme of things where they were talking about serious issues with bullying and with clicks and with their parents. And I thought this is just fascinating stuff. So I do think that there's a storytelling aspect that, that, that kids who are in their twenties are looking for. And they might be finding in these 80s movies. And if they're finding it because of Stranger Things and Cobra Kai, and they're going down this rabbit hole and they're Googling 80s movies. And I say that you could Google like Pretty in Pink and it could take you down a rabbit hole of music and movies and all kinds of stuff that you and I could never. If I wanted to find out about Led Zeppelin in the 80s, a, you know, a 70s band in the 80s, I had to ask the guy sitting on a Camaro, smoking a cigarette with a Led Zeppelin patch on his jeans jacket. On his, you know, on his jeans jacket, yeah. yeah. And I'm like, <laughs> you know what I'm not doing? I'm not asking that guy because I don't want him to kick my ass. Yeah, he'll like, kill you, yeah. <laughs> so now they can just Google it. Yeah. And it takes them down this really interesting rabbit hole. Yeah. And I think they're finding really cool stories and really cool content and really cool characters and they're finding that they're learning things from unexpected places. A great example would be Jeff Spicoli. Yep. Jeff Spicoli, stoner surfer dude, Fast Times at Ridgemount High, which has a great background actually in, in how it was made and how Cameron Crowe went undercover in high school, high school at 24 years old. And all the characters are based on real characters from a real movie. I mean, I'm sorry, real characters from a real high school. And Amy Heckerling directed it. She was really young at the time. And then she directed Clueless, which was kind of like a, a 90s version of Fast Times. And Jeff Spicoli is not somebody you think you could learn from. But there's a moment in the movie where he's late to class again. And Mr. Hand is just so upset by him. And he's like, Mr. Spicoli, why are you always late to my class? 
Ms. McCauley says, I don't know. And this is really important because you and I growing up, when we got into the business world, if you said, I don't know to a question, people would say, what do you mean you don't know? You need to know every answer to every question. And how is that possible? Like, you know, we're not omnipotent. How can we know every answer to every question? If you're out there saying, I do, well, then in the words of the church lady, isn't that special? But for the rest of us, we, you can't possibly know the answer to every question. So I think it's a sign of strength and confidence and character to say, I don't know. And I think I would tell people in their 20s as well, when you get into the corporate world, it's okay to say, I don't know. You want to caveat it with a, let me get the answer for you. I'll get back to you. And depending on the industry you work in, that might be in 30 minutes. It might be in 30 days. But telling people you'll get the answer for them um, is also important. But saying, I don't know, is a sign of strength and confidence of character. It's okay to admit you don't know. You're not going to know every answer. Don't make it up. People are going to find out that you made something up and you're going to lose credibility amongst other things. It's okay to say, I don't know. Now, I caveat it with, uh, let me get back to you, because if you ever watch Seinfeld, which started in the 80s, one season in the 80s, but really a 90s sitcom, there's a scene where George says to Jerry, George, I met this girl. I think I'm going to say, you know, I love you. And Jerry says, are you sure about that? And he says, yeah, why? I'm going to say, I love you. And he said, are you sure? Because, you know, if you don't get the return, I love you. That's a pretty big matzo ball hanging out there. And... (laughs) And I say, when you say, I don't know, it's a sign of strength and confidence and character, but make sure you caveat it with, I'll get back to you. Right. Because if you just leave it out there, that's also a pretty big matzo ball that you're leaving out there. I just say, yeah, I no, totally. No, I totally get that. I think what's interesting about, and I think it, it kind of comes through in the attitude of the eighties too. Um, you know, I always say, you know, that Gen X is between boomers and millennials and we hate them equally because they're all a bunch of knuckleheads like what do you, you know, what do y'all know right like we were the first latchkey generation like we're just, people, we just have our literally people abandoned us in front of the tv watch hogan's heroes yeah. gilligan's island take care of yourself yeah. and oh by the way pop in the hungry man dinner when it's around you know dinner time because mom and dad are working right like so we were yeah, left here's on a few dollars worth of quarters go play yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah whatever right like yeah go to the pizza place right like <laughs> amuse yourself. It's a totally different, no one, the cavalry ain't coming for us. Right. And I, it's funny because you're to your point, you know, the, 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 the next generation coming up, you know, twenties in the workforce where they have more meaning in their life. They really are like, they have the right kind of attitude about work-life balance, quote unquote. Yeah. Yeah. But you see a lot of the Gen X uh, millennial, like the tension between Gen X and boomer management, like, of course, the coming, like the older folk, they just don't understand, like, why aren't these people motivated to go above and beyond, quote unquote? Well, the thing is, again, the, the quiet, the quiet quitting and all these other things, it's like, it's a lot. They think it's a lot. Like, they don't believe it because yeah. they don't see it. They see all of the stuff going on, massive corporate uh, massive wealth inequality, massive corporate profits, just, you know, the gig economy, I think, realize that like, again, they're probably thinking like what we thought when we were kids, like no one's helping us. No one's coming for us. Yeah, We got to just, it's all about us. And it's not in a selfish way, like in the eighties, right? Eighties were, you know, me, 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 you know, yeah. it's whatever. They're like, <laughs> I don't trust you. I don't trust the dream anymore. And I think that's just really, I mean, it's cynical, it's nihilistic, but I also think, you know, to, to your point and what you're trying to do, which I really appreciate, 
I think that authenticity of the 80s and the culture and what you're talking about, we, Gen X, has to impart that on the next generation and say, you're right. And here is how we dealt with it because yeah. it's coming back around. I feel it all the time. It's like, they just, they're skeptical. And, and that skepticism goes into nihilism. And then you think of all the social media, which thank God we never had when we were kids. Oh. Cause man, I think it would be, it would have been nutty all the stupid stuff I did. But to your point, like the nihilism doesn't work. And right. even though the eighties were a little bit more, you know, like, okay, we're a little more sarcastic and a little more like in your face, there wasn't nihilism like there is today. That is bad. And I think it's up to us, honestly, Gen X needs to, I'm not going to say save Z's and millennials, but it's our turn to figure this out. And, and I really love what you're doing. And I also just wanted to quickly ask you, I know you do a lot of advocacy and stuff yeah. like that. And I was just curious, well, like, why don't you tell us a little bit about your advocacy and how, yeah, and how that plays into it. your, to your book, to your book sales. And I would tell you, um, I would tell Gen Z, Hey now, Hey now, don't dream it's over. It's yeah. Over. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know that. If you yes. know that reference. Yes. Hey yes. Now, hey now, don't dream it's over. Yeah. It's not over. We, we got your back guy. Honestly. It's folks, just beginning. And I think we got I, your I, back. I, I think there's a lot of similarities between Gen, Gen X and Gen Z. I hear it. I hear yeah. it when they talk. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of similarities, a great opportunity there. Yeah. yeah so I, um, you know, I'm a huge animal rescue advocate and, uh, you know, I, Dead Poet Society, another great eighties movie, great lessons yeah. in that movie. It's in my yeah. new book that's coming out. Yeah. And um, there's a, a point where uh, John Keating, Robin Williams character, the teacher says, no matter what, no matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. Yep. And uh, I say, you know, that's kind of like the talk, the talk, but you've got to walk the walk as well. And so for my walk, the walk, it's uh, animal rescue. Mm -hmm. My boy Bodie is an 80 pound pit and I rescued him two years ago, a little over two years ago, completely. So such a misunderstood breed, such yes. an awesome dog. Um, he was dead on the street at three months old on the sidewalk. Wow. Um, couldn't walk, couldn't go to the bathroom. And I got him in August of 2020 and, and, they talk about like, you save each other? Well, quickly uh, on a personal note in 2021, uh, March of 2021, my stepmom who'd been in my life for 40 years. So not a stepmom of a couple of years, 40 years. She got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Three weeks late, three weeks later, she was gone dead within wow. three weeks. Just, I mean, just like in a blink of an eye. And then uh, my mom died of Alzheimer's in July of that year. So within a 90 day period, I lost two people who had been in my life for you know, my mom forever. And my, my stepmom for 40 years. And uh, then we had to move my dad into independent living and we were dealing with my stepdad who was crushed because of my mom was his high school sweetheart. There was just all this stuff. My girlfriend at the time, she packed up her RV about a month before my stepmom passed. Didn't know that all this was going to happen. Of course, right. she packs up her RV. She takes off cross country. So my life was like a country song. Um, but uh, my dog, Bodie was there the entire time yeah. and he was my rock. And wow. so, you know, Rescue is the best breed. That's what I tell everybody. Rescue is the best breed. If you can save a dog instead of buying one, um, adopt, don't shop is like the hashtag. Uh, I give a portion of the proceeds for my book sales and my speaking gigs to Wonder Paul's Rescue in South Florida. They're the rescue that saved Bodie. These rescues work so hard every single day to save these lives of these dogs. And it is just nonstop, 24-7 grueling work. Uh, but we can all do our part. And uh, I want to do mine. And so that's what I do. Wow. That's so great, Chris. 
could talk for with you forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Love what you're doing. Love the dog sure. rescue. Love that. You know, great, great what you're trying to do. And I just love the fact that it's this, uh, you know, the 80s culture and what we can learn from it. And also, you know, like, I think it's Gen X's time to yeah. get there. You know, we got to, we got to step up. I just, we got to step up and stop the insanity. Yeah. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> we got to bring back the mall arcades is what we have to do. Yeah, and the mullet. No, we don't have to bring back. No, the not the mullet. <laughs> not the fashion. Only, the, only vans. No parachute yeah, vans. Yeah. No members only jackets. Ooh. No Jakar Noir. <laughs> no rat tails. None of that stuff. Leave it all. Uh, look that all up, there, folks yeah. that don't know about that. But hey, Chris, appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, stay safe and uh, we'll be in touch. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, Chris, for an awesome interview. It was so cool to kind of reminisce about all those great 80s movies and, of course, great 80s music and culture, you know, everything except the mullet. <laughs> so, um, as promised, here are some actionable insights that I learned from my awesome interview with Chris. Chris's advice to entrepreneurs is to take time to breathe. Like Ferris Bueller, it's okay to give yourself a break and take some time off. Stress, he points out, rolls downhill. How you react to stress is going to affect those around you. Indeed, I mean, we have all this culture of just work, 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 work. If you're not working 80 hours a week, you know, you're not going to be successful. And, you know, that just doesn't work. I mean, you get burnout so fast. And honestly, the older you get the worse that burnout gets. So, you know, when you're young, I think I've talked about this before, you may have to work hard. You got to learn what you don't know, right? But I think the most important thing is to, you do have to have a balance. You got to like recharge a little bit. You have to have to kind of rest and digest as opposed to always being in fight or flight, you know, that lot of stress, right? Chris believes 80s movies are so appealing to younger generations simply for their great storytelling and relatability. You don't have to have all those special effects, bells, and whistles to make something people like. Yeah, we briefly touched on this, and it was interesting to hear his take on why the 80s endure and all that. So you have to listen to, you know, you've gotten this far, so you probably listened to the whole thing. But I think I share his opinion. I mean, the 80s were the pure time when culture was generated by the masses as opposed to cookie cutter. Cookie cutter sorry. So there's some truth to that. So... The lesson for your you know, organization is, you know, be true to who you are and create something that's unique to you. Chris notes that he has more memories from his travels than he does from the things he has bought. He advises younger people to focus on making experience, not just acquiring things. Yeah, <clears throat> I mean, the experience of doing things and traveling and just like having interests outside your company is super important. I, I cannot tell you how many times. I've had some of my best ideas when I was traveling somewhere or doing something completely outside of what you know I do for a living. I think the importance of that is perspective and it gets your subconscious mind you know working and stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, the experiences are going to what make your life. That's what you're going to remember, I think, you know, when you're in your final days. So take his advice to heart. So there you have it. The actionable insights I learned from my awesome interview with Chris. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Entrepreneur Ethos Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did creating it. 
My hope is that you learned something that can make you a little bit better. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with friends and review it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join my email list by visiting theentrepreneurethos.com to get my thoughts on what I'm doing to get better, as well as what I'm working on. You can also pick up my book, The Entrepreneur Ethos, if you want to learn the traits, values, and beliefs that I think we need to build a more ethical, inclusive, and resilient entrepreneur and, frankly, world community. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at The Daily MBA and let me know if you have any questions or recommendations for a guest you'd like me to talk to. Also, drop me a note if you try anything we talked about on this or any other episode. I'd love to hear what's working for you. Until next time, keep getting better. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com.